Amen. If you have a Bible, go with me to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We're going to conclude our study through the book of Jonah. Tonight we'll be in chapter 4, verse 1 here in just a second. So the greatest night of ministry that I was ever a part of in terms of like uh, immediate results, okay? Because I, I understand eternity is going to be able to tell us about results that we may not even see in the moment and those kinds of things. But the greatest night of ministry I was ever a part of in terms of immediate results was when I was on a mission trip in the Philippines. And uh, I went to the Philippines. I was 20 years old and uh, went with Bob Tebow to uh, do mission work in the Philippines. And there was about 120 of us, uh, young people, all the way from high school students to college students. And they would drive us all over the islands there in the Philippines, and we would go into schools during the day and preach the gospel. And so I, I preached the gospel 55 times in three weeks. It was really where I learned to preach. Uh, and so I, I, we would do that during the day. And so we would be in these Jeeps, and we would drive out all over these islands. It would take us all day, and then we would get back uh, to where we were staying at night, and we'd be exhausted, and we'd have dinner and uh, hang out together. And so it's all these young people all hanging out together. And then what, what Bob did at night is he had some of the older guys, uh, and so I was one of them, that he would have a further assignment for us to do. We would eat dinner, hang out for a second, rest, and then jump back in the Jeep with a, uh, a church-planting Filipino pastor. And then they would drive us out into a village uh, at night. And so they would drive us into these villages. And this one night, we went uh, about an hour and a half to two hours away from where we were staying. And every village there on those islands in the Philippines have a basketball court in the middle of the village. And so what we did is we would set up a white sheet, okay, a white curtain, and have a projector, and we would show the Jesus film on that on that sheet, and so they would, we would, we would show that film to everybody in the village, and we would, we would watch it, and then at the end, uh, they would have the the preacher. I would get up at the end after the the movie, and I would preach the gospel. And this night, um, I uh, was so tired, I laid in the back of the jeep and slept. I took a nap uh, while they were showing the movie, and then they woke me up and said, "Hey, it's it's time to preach," and so I. I go out in front of, again, this, this entire village, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people, multi-generations, and I preached the gospel as best I could as a 20-year-old, as a and uh, I got, got ready to give the invitation. This, the, the Filipino church planter is translating for me, so I, I would say a sentence, and he would say a sentence, and I would say a sentence, he would say a sentence, and so I preached the gospel, and then I give the invitation, and we had people that were ready there to, uh, to counsel with them. And so I, I give the invitation, and I'm like, hey, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior right now, please, please come forward. You know, come forward. And like hundreds of people came forward. I'm talking about uh, grandma and daughter and granddaughter and grandpa and son and grandson. Like all of these people come forward and we're explaining to them how they can put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. People are weeping. Uh, and it was just like, it was just in incredible. Like the greatest, again, immediate reaction that I'd ever seen uh, in my life as I preached the gospel. So imagine what, what would have happened when I, I get back in the Jeep, okay, and then they would drive us back to where we were going, and there were some people who, were, who would be asleep by that point, but then there were other uh, young people who were still up and hanging out and just, you know, just spending time together and talking. And imagine if when we got back to where we were staying, uh, instead of going and hanging out with my friends and talking to my friends, I went over in the corner and 
kind of folded my arms and was looking really upset and angry. And uh, Bob came over to me and said, hey, John, what's the deal? I heard it was a good night. And I said, yeah, but you know what? God's never done that for me when I preach in America. So I'm pretty bent out of shape about it. I didn't want all those people. I didn't want that grandma coming to Christ. And so I'm, I'm angry and I'm, I'm ticked off. Like how, how ridiculous would I have looked in front of all those people? What would, Bob, Bob is, a, is an aggressive evangelist. What do you think Bob would have said to me if I had pitched a fit in the corner and pouted because, you know what, I know this happened tonight, but I didn't really want it to happen and I don't understand why this doesn't happen for me when I preach in the United States of America and I pouted like that. But that's, that's what happens at the end of the book of Jonah. See, the end of the book of Jonah, so often we think, yeah, Jonah messed up at first. He ran away from God, but then God got a hold of him. He went to Nineveh. He preached. There was a revival, and everybody lived happily ever after. In fact, most of our children's Bibles, even the children's Bible that, that I love, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, is a great children's Bible, read it to all of our kids when they were younger. The story of Jonah that they tell in the Jesus Storybook Bible ends after chapter three. It like ends with the revival, but the, but the actual book of Jonah does not end at the end of chapter three. There's a chapter four. And chapter four really kind of takes a turn. You know, Jonah doesn't, come out of the, the revival that he's seen in Nineveh on this spiritual high and on cloud nine, you know, he doesn't, you know, sign a book deal and like, hey, let me share with you all the strategies for reaching Ninevites, you know? He doesn't start doing the conference tour where he's gonna, he's gonna preach, you know, seven secrets on revival among really difficult people. No, Jonah pitches a fit and Jonah pouts and Jonah is angry about what God did in Nineveh. Here's a question I wanna ask, because again, it's easy for us all these thousands of years later to look at Jonah, and he's kind of a pitiful figure, and he's, he's kind of ridiculous, and it's easy for us to stand in judgment on Jonah for the way that he acts, especially the way that he acts to the mercy of God that God has shown to Nineveh. But my question that I want us to really ponder when we think about the fact that God loves the entire world and the fact that God, uh, Paul tells us in, as he writes this letter to Timothy, he says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is the difference between Jonah pouting after he's been obedient to God to share with the nations and us simply not being obedient to preach the gospel to the nations. Like what's the difference between Jonah actually doing it and God using him and saving those people and us in our inactivity failing to do what God has actually asked us to do? What does our inactivity say about our heart and love for the world? What is our, honestly, if we're, if we're real honest with ourselves, what does our superiority complex when we think about certain types of people and certain types of nations in the world. You know that, that Nineveh uh, today, modern day, is, is Mosul in Iraq. And how many Christians, whether they would say it out loud or not, 
think to themselves in their mind, you know what? I'd rather Mosul be turned into a parking lot than a place for God's revival to happen. I wish we'd bomb them back into the Stone Age. How many Christians have said that before? And so it's easy for us to judge Jonah for what he did and then got upset about rather than to turn that inspection on us and to say, what does our inactivity and what does our superiority complex where we think we're better than other people because we live in the United States of America or because we're Christians or because we go to church, what does it say about our heart for the world? That's the question that God wants us to ask. So Jonah chapter four, verse one, we'll read down through the end of the book. If you would, please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God. As we read this story, the conclusion to the story, let's ask ourselves the question, what, what does this say about us and our relationship to a God who loves the entire world? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and then the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's the question I want to ask tonight from Jonah chapter four. Will we love the world like God loves the world? Will we love the world like God loves the world? Again, the Bible tells us God desires all the peoples of the earth to be saved. And he wants his people, those who claim to be his followers, to share in his love and in his heart for the salvation of the world. And so will we? Will we love the world the way that God loves the world? And what I want to do is I, as I try to help us from the book of Jonah think about that question is I want to ask kind of four diagnostic questions really quickly from this chapter. Four diagnostic questions that we can ask 
of our hearts, of our lives, to see if we really do love the world the way that God loves the world, and to see if we care about the world the way that God cares about the world. First question is this. Do we resent or celebrate God's grace to the lost of the world? Do we resent or celebrate God's grace to the lost of the world? Jonah there at the beginning of the chapter gets angry with God and he prays this complaint. And finally it's revealed to us for the first time, not only why he's mad, but why he refused to go to Nineveh in the first place. It's finally revealed like his thinking of why he went in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he says, the reason why he did this, he said, I told you this. I I said this to you when you gave me the assignment in the first place. I didn't want to go because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah refused to go to Nineveh not because he was opposed to preaching a hellfire and brimstone message to the enemies of Israel. He refused to go because he knew that his God was gracious and merciful and patient and loving and forgiving. The, the phrase that Jonah uses here is first found in Exodus 34. It's, it's kind of the, the key doctrine about the character of God. This is what Israel confesses about their God. And so Jonah says, look, I knew what kind of God that you are, and I knew how you were gonna treat them, and I knew that you were gonna save them, and I didn't want that to happen. And so that's why I ran in the opposite direction. You see, so many people think that Jonah was scared to go to Nineveh because he was scared about what the Ninevites would do to him. No, he was scared about what God was gonna do for Nineveh. He didn't want God to save them. He didn't want God to give them grace and undeserved favor. Jonah doesn't want God to be gracious to the nations and he's, he's reflecting here his people. He's a prophet to the people of Israel. God had called the people of Israel not to take the blessing that God had given them and keep it to themselves. He says, through you, I'm gonna bless all the nations on the earth and instead of being a light to the nations, Israel is keeping all of that to themselves. And they're not reaching out on mission to their neighbors. So the dialogue here between Jonah and God kind of puts the book's theme into central focus. God loves the entire world and he wants his people to love the entire world the way that he does. And to bring the salvation that he's given them to the peoples of the world. But Jonah does not want them to receive the undeserved favor that God had given to the nation of Israel. And so instead of celebrating and partying with the angels in heaven at 120,000 people who have been rescued by God, he pitches a fit and says that he wants to die. Now, why does he want to die? There's a couple of different reasons why he's really upset about this. Number one is theological pride, okay? Theological pride. He doesn't think that they deserve to be saved by God. We get a glimpse of this in his prayer. So even though he runs at first and then repents and confesses to God and we see a little bit of change in his character, he still doesn't get the whole thing because in his prayer back in chapter two, we looked at this last week, he says in chapter two, verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He says they've disqualified themselves. I know we in Israel are sinners, but we're not idolaters. 
And because we're not idolaters, we qualify for grace, but they're disqualified from grace. And listen, the second that you think there's a type of people in the world who are qualified for grace, and there's a type of people in the world who are disqualified from grace, you don't understand grace. Because grace is undeserved. It's unqualified. And so Jonah has pride here because he thinks we're sinners, but we're not those kind of sinners. And so that's why we deserve salvation. That's why they don't deserve salvation. So the first reason that he's upset is theological pride. The second is national prejudice. National prejudice. He's, he's guilty here of ethnocentrism, or we use the word today, racism. He would rather those people that are different than him go to hell than to go to heaven because they are different from him. He would rather them go to hell than to go to heaven. Now I understand, listen, to be real, I don't really have to be careful. So, so post, before 2016, you could bring up race and you could talk about race and not be labeled liberal, Marxist, whatever, you know, just simply by the fact that you're talking about race. Post 2016, it's a different world, and anytime you bring up race, you're labeled, okay? You're a liberal, you're a Democrat, you love CRT, you love, you know, Marxism, all, all this stuff, and you get, get labeled all these things. In fact, these things have become such like hot item, you know, words that there is a, a, a pastor, a preacher in the Midwest, who tweeted, he put on Twitter, Jonah was guilty of racism. He did not want the Ninevites to repent. And people clobbered him and said, you're race baiting, you're a liberal, you're a Marxist, that's not what the text is about, etc." And then he came back and said, oops, I actually was quoting somebody and I forgot to put the quotation marks in there. He didn't really forget, he was, he was messing with everybody. That was said by John MacArthur. Now, John MacArthur is the furthest thing from liberal or Marxist like of any pastor in the United States of America. And so this is, is, is pretty clear. Again, at least 20, before 2016, you could talk about this in Jonah and you could talk about it in Galatians. But Jonah is guilty here of prejudice and ethnocentrism. He thinks that Israel deserves the grace of God and the nations outside of Israel do not deserve the grace and the mercy of God. Now, said this every week, I'll say it again, it's easy to be critical of Jonah, but the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we like him? Are we like him? Do we resent times when God gives grace to the lost? Or do we resent at times certain types of people that God gives grace to. Let me just kind of bring this uh, home locally. There's so many Christians that I've met who say that they want their church to grow, but they have all kinds of qualifiers that they want to put next to grow. I, I want my church to grow, but I don't want to lose my seat. I want my church to grow but I don't want that demographic to start coming to our church. I want my church to grow, but I don't want people from that political party to start coming to my church. Had a pastor friend in Southern Indiana 
His church began to grow and explode with baptisms and conversions and like a thousand conversions in one year and hundreds of baptisms. And they fired him because the people that he was winning to Christ came from the wrong side of the tracks. And so are there types of people that you think, yeah, yeah, I know they deserve grace, but I don't want them to be here. And I don't want them to be among us. Well, then you're more like Jonah than you want to admit. Let's talk about overseas. Jonah, again, is guilty of ethnocentrism. He thinks that Israel's better than everybody else and that they should withhold what God has given them and not give it to the nations. Let me ask you the question. Do you think, and do we think, that we're better than other people because we are citizens of the United States of America? Do we think that that makes us better than other people. Again, you may never say that out loud, but how many in the room would rather God zap Muslim peoples rather than bring revival to Muslim peoples? And would rather us go to war against Muslim nations than to send missionaries to Muslim nations? I ask this question, again, I understand, I ask this, all the time, in the South, in the Bible Belt, outside of the Bible Belt, I'll, just, I'll ask you the same question. When it comes to things like, and again, I understand there are complex political realities, okay? And so I'm not, I'm not making a political statement here and I'm not telling you that there's easy answers to this. But when you think about, when you read stories or you see stories on the news about immigration or uh, refugees, like, like um, I read a book, several years ago uh, called The Insanity of God by a guy named Nick Ripkin who was an international mission board missionary. And he tells the story in that book uh, when he was a missionary in Somalia and they were taking food to these, um, these folks who were starving to death in Somalia. And so they had these SUVs and they would, they would drive down the street and they would push boxes of food out and they couldn't stop because if they stopped, then they, just, they would get mobbed and those kind of things. And so they would literally like drive through these villages, windows down, pushing these boxes out. And he, he tells a story that there are young mothers holding their infants who are running up to the car and trying to shove their babies into the window because they know that the only chance their baby has to live is if it gets inside of that car. Let me just ask you the question, moms, how desperate would you have to be to shove your baby into a car full of strangers that you don't know? And when we see these stories about refugees who wanna to come to the United States of America or immigrants who wanna to come to the United States of America, let me just ask you the question. When you see those stories on the news, do you process those news stories first as a citizen of the United States of America or as a citizen of heaven? How do you process it first? Kingdom of God? America. The answer to that question might actually reveal to you where your primary allegiance is. One of those things is great but temporary. One of those things is awesome and eternal. And so how do you process the news? And do you have a heart for the world? Do we want the conversion of the communist government in China or the condemnation 
of the communist government in China. I fear, like Jonah, like Israel, at times, we can develop a national superiority complex that causes us to fail to be a light to the nations that God has called the church to be. I love the United States of America. I think we need to thank God for the men and women who gave their lives so that we could have the freedoms that we have. I think we need to work politically to try to protect those freedoms. I think all of those things are true. But if you use those to think that you're better than somebody else, then you don't understand grace. Because bottom line, there's not one person in this room who chose to be born in the United States of America, including me. There's not one person, I did not choose any more than my friends in Vietnam and the Philippines chose to be born into Buddhist homes. I did not choose to be born into the home of a pastor who read the Bible to me every single night before I went to bed. And the only difference between me and them is I have the gospel, and so now I have a responsibility to get the gospel to them. And so do we resent or celebrate God's grace to the lost of the world? Second question. Do we care more about our temporary material blessings than we do others' eternal salvation? Do we care more about our temporary material blessings than we do others' eternal salvation? We read the story. Jonah goes outside the city, and he, he makes a shelter for himself, okay? So he, he basically goes uh, camping, okay? It reminds me of the uh, Jim Gaffigan is a comedian, uh, does a bit where he, he talks about how his wife likes to camp and he doesn't, he doesn't like to camp, okay? That's, that, would, that would be true of us. Ashley would be more open to camping. I, I like air conditioner, okay? And so Gaffigan says that his wife says, hey, let's go camping. It's a family tradition. And he said his response is, yeah, it was everybody's family tradition until we invented the house, you know? And now that we have houses, why would we want to go camping anymore. That's what Jonah does. Jonah builds this booth outside the city and he just waits hoping that God's going to turn Nineveh into Sodom and Gomorrah. He's hoping God's going to rain fire down from heaven and destroy them. And so he's sitting out there pitching his fit and God appoints a plant to grow up beside the booth to give him shade and shelter so that he's protected. So that the text literally says there uh, in verse six that he is saved from his discomfort. He's literally saved from his discomfort. Again, as we talked about last week, Jonah, after being digested in the belly of the fish, probably was bleached probably had all of his hair singed off. He's out there in that Middle Eastern sun. It's beating down on his head, okay? And he's, he's, he's exposed to the elements. Is it dangerous for his life? And God causes a plant to grow up over him and shelter him from the sun. I mean, you know what? I don't know about you, when, when you have little kids, like that's not how we handle fits at our house. You know, like you're pitching a fit, you're, you're, you're having a temper tantrum. Let me see if I can make you more comfortable. Let's see if we can make things better for you. I mean, but here's the, the good news of this, uh, of this book is God loves irreligious pagans and self-righteous jerk religious people alike. And he's gracious to and he's good to 
all of them. And so God pours out his mercy on Jonah here. And for the first time in the book, he's happy. It says Jonah was exceedingly glad. He goes from exceedingly mad to exceedingly glad because the plant has come up. And then the next morning, God, in his humor and grace, sends a worm to destroy the plant, expose Jonah to the hot wind and sunburn, and again, Jonah wants to die. And God says to him, you know, do you have a right to be angry about this? God blessed Jonah materially, and Jonah got happy. God takes Jonah's material comfort away, and Jonah gets mad. And here's the bottom line, like, Jonah finally gets upset about something that's perishing. It's, it's a plant and not 120,000 people, but he's finally upset. He's finally concerned about something that is perishing. So Jonah is happy at God's grace to him, but he's disgusted at God's grace to Nineveh. And this raises a question for us. What, what makes us mad? What, what really gets us upset and what gets us um, frustrated? Do we react more strongly to the loss of material things than we do the reality of a lost world around us? Like what causes stronger emotions? When your food comes out late at the restaurant or there's 1.7 billion people who've never heard the name of Jesus? When your car has some trouble and it's gonna be a couple hundred bucks to fix it and it's frustrating and it's annoying, or the fact that there are billions of people who are headed to hell without much access to the gospel. Do we care more about physical blessings that God has given us than we do the lost around us? And here's the, the truth. The most American Christians spend more money annually on their cats and their dogs than they do on the Great Commission. More money on our pets than on people who are perishing and heading into eternity without Christ. And so, do we care more about our temporary material blessings than we do others' eternal salvation? Or are we gonna use the temporary material blessings that God has given us to fund the Great Commission and to see eternal souls saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you give to First Baptist Church Naples, you are funding the organization I work for, the North American Mission Board. Last year in 2020, during COVID, the North American Mission Board planted almost 600 churches in the United States and Canada. 600 gospel preaching churches. Last year, through the International Mission Board, over 500,000 people worldwide heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's take the material blessings, amen. Let's take the material blessings that God has given us and let's use them for the salvation of the lost. Number three, third question, do we really want to live in a world where people only get what they deserve? Do we really want to live in a world where people only get what they deserve? Let me just... Uh, mention this quickly. God is not done graciously working in Jonah's life. As I said, the worm that he sent is his humor, and it is a chastisement on Jonah, but it's also his mercy because he's trying to change Jonah's heart. Like, he's changed Nineveh's heart. 
Now he's trying to change Jonah's heart and he's trying to, to complete the, the process of sanctification. God making us more like Jesus is a process of grace, sometimes painful grace that God allows into our lives to wake us up, to get our attention. And that's what he's doing here with Jonah. What, what's happening here, one preacher pointed this out, is that the booth that Jonah made for himself and the vine that God caused to grow up over that booth teach us some valuable lessons about the world that we are living in and about living in a world where people get what they deserve. The, the, the booth that Jonah made for himself is what Jonah deserves. It's his own effort, okay? It's a self-made world that he is in control of. That's what he deserves. The shelter that the Lord gives him is a world of mercy and salvation. Again, that's the very word that he uses, to save him from his discomfort, to save him from evil is literally the, the Hebrew word there. And so you have two worlds, the world that Jonah makes, that's a world of his own effort, his own deeds, that's insufficient, He's not happy yet. And then the world of grace and mercy that God has given him by causing this plant to grow up over him. And now all of a sudden, Jonah is happy and he's excited about what is going on. And God does for him what he's done for Nineveh earlier in chapter three. And so this is a world with the vine that is a world that's far better than Jonah deserves. And when the Lord returns him to his old self-made world, when the plant is destroyed, Jonah realizes, you know what? I don't really like that all that much. That's not the kind of world that I want to live in. And so before God condemns Jonah to a world of unmitigated truth and justice, God wants Jonah to think about what such a world would mean for him. And he wants the reader, he wants you to think about what would that kind of world mean to you. People around us want to turn this world into one without mercy, without forgiveness, without second chances. Is that really the paradise that they think it is? And Jonah tells us, no, 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 that's, that's not paradise at all. In fact, that is hell. Hell is where you get what you deserve and the world you want to live in is the world that is ruled not just by the justice of God but by the grace of God where you receive what you do not deserve. This is Jonah's problem. Let me just show you this real quick. Jonah, as I said there in verse two, is quoting from Exodus 34. And I want us to compare these verses real quick because Jonah leaves something out, okay? And this is important. Jonah says, you'll see this on the screen, in Jonah 4, verse 2, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now compare that to what God reveals about himself in Exodus 34. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Jonah leaves that out. And so what Jonah's doing as he quotes scripture is he's basically saying, you're not doing what you said you would do. You're clearing the guilty. You're not giving them what they deserve. Now, again, not that he wants what he deserves, but you're not giving them what they deserve. Jonah didn't understand, as we've talked about from week one, Jonah did not understand how truth and justice could go along with grace and mercy. And in some ways we need to 
sympathize with him because Jonah does not stand where we stand. We stand on the other side of Jesus and we stand on the other side of Calvary. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? When Jesus is born, John chapter one, John says about Jesus that, that he dwelt among us and that he was the one who was full of grace and truth. The grace of God and the truth of God come together in Jesus Christ. And we see that clearly in the cross. In the cross, God by no means clears the guilty. He pours out his judgment on human sin. But he is gracious and merciful and forgiving and patient and loving because he pours out his wrath on a substitute rather than pouring out his wrath on us. And so do we want to live in a world where we only get what we deserve or do we want to live in a world where we get undeserved mercy from God? And when we recognize that's the kind of world we want to live in, then we're going to be agents taking that message to people all around us who need to hear that. Last question is this. Do we look with contempt or compassion on the spiritually blind peoples of the world? Do we look with contempt or compassion on the spiritually blind people of the world? The, the book ends with a final conversation between God and Jonah that drives the point of the book home, where God makes this, this question. It's really a striking ending. I'll, just, I'll talk about this just briefly, just very quickly. He says, you pity the plant. You didn't work for it. Shouldn't I pity this city that's filled with 120,000 people that I created who are spiritually blind? They do not know their left hand from their right hand. And then amazing, like, and much cattle. <laughs> like, that's the end of the book, you know? You care, about the, you care about the kale? What about the steaks, right? Like, the steaks are better than the kale. And, and that's the end of the book. And this is really like it's an open-ended. This is, there, we have no idea how Jonah reacts. We have no idea what happens. There's no second Jonah in the Bible. God leaves it open-ended because he's, he's really, it doesn't really matter what Jonah did. What matters is what are you gonna do? Are you, are you gonna get the lesson? Am I gonna get the lesson? That, that's what he's really getting at. This is exactly um, how Jesus ends the story of the prodigal son. In fact, one preacher said that Jonah really is an illustration of the story of the prodigal son. In the first half of the book of Jonah, he's the prodigal who's running away from God. In the second half of the book, he's the older brother who's complaining about God pouring out mercy on sinners. And so at the end of the prodigal son, after the sons come home and his, his older brothers pitched a fit that the dads welcomed him back and thrown this party, the book ends with the dad basically saying, isn't, isn't this right? Shouldn't we celebrate this? He was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. Shouldn't we celebrate this? And Jonah ends the exact same way. Jonah, shouldn't I have pity on these people who don't know what they're doing and they're, they're, they're spiritually blind sheep without a shepherd? Shouldn't I love them the way that I love you? And so the book is open-ended. It's a challenge to us as the readers. Are we gonna share in God's love for the world? This is a, an important question. How do we see the lost people around us who are headed to hell? Do we see them as enemies? They're our enemies. 
or do we see them as spiritually blind sheep without a shepherd? Now, I'm gonna say this, it's tough. Sometimes it's very, the world makes it very tough uh, to love them. I, somebody sent me a tweet today, a lady, I think she lives in the Northeast. So she said, um, she said, a, a tiny inclusive language thing I've tried to get better at this past year is avoiding Northern hemisphere specific language. Instead of saying summer, I say the name of the month or quarter three because it might be that season for me, but it might not be that season for everyone. You know what my reaction to that tweet is? <laughs> Give me a break, all right? So, but here, listen. People that say dumb things. Do we see them as our enemy? Or do we see them as spiritually blind people without a shepherd that need the love of Jesus just like we've received the love of Jesus? How do we view the world around us? Do we view them as our enemies that are to be defeated or do we view them as sheep who need the same shepherd that we have? How do we know that God loves the world? How do we know that God loves us in our immense selfishness and sin? And how can we be transformed to love the world just like God loves the world? We know it because God sent another prophet, his son, Jesus Christ, who Jesus says is one that is greater than Jonah. See, Jesus is the true vine that provides eternal relief, not temporary relief. Jesus is the better booth, the Bible says, who has tabernacled among us. Jesus is the, the light to the nations that Israel was supposed to be. And whereas Jonah had no compassion for the city, the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he sees the lost people around him, he is moved to compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Jonah goes outside the city waiting for its condemnation, Jesus goes outside the city to bring salvation to the world. Jonah shows no concern for the spiritually blind people around him, but Jesus, as he's gasping in his dying breath, asks his father, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And Jonah would have given his life for the Ninevites to die. Jesus gave his life for the world so that it might live. And so the way that we can love the world the way that God loves us is by being completely wrapped up in and in awe of the love that God has poured out to us in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you the question. Will we love the world the way that God loves it? Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna stand and sing and we're gonna have a, a minute of response and invitation. Here's what I wanna challenge you with as you think about responding to this message. One, if you're, if you're here tonight or you're watching online and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never received the love of God, you've never received eternal life from Jesus Christ, then we wanna offer you that tonight. And you can, right there in your seat, you can bow your head and you can pray and you can call out. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you can call out to Jesus and admit you're a sinner, that you believe he died on the cross for you and was raised from the dead. 
that you want him to come into your life and forgive you of your sin, to take you to heaven when you die, to be with him, and to change you right now to be more like him in this life. And you pray that to him, then he hears and he responds and he saves. If that's you, if you need to pray that prayer, then we wanna, we wanna talk to you about that. We wanna explain whatever, we wanna answer whatever questions you have about that. So we're gonna have pastors here at the front who would love to talk to you and who would love to uh, just sit down with you in private. We're not gonna you know, single you out or we're not gonna uh, do anything to embarrass you. We just love to, to take you to the side in private and talk to you about how you can receive the love that God has given you in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you've been saved and you've put your trust in Jesus, but you've never been baptized. We wanna invite you to be baptized. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you're here and you need to join a church where you can get on, on mission with us as we take the gospel to Southwest Florida and beyond. We'd love to have you here. Maybe you need to wrestle with tonight, okay, how, God, how can I start loving the world around me the way that you've loved me? All kinds of ways that you can start. You can start by inviting people to church. Not just the people that are quote unquote like you, but the people that are not like you. We've done who's your one as a church before. Let me ask you a question. Instead of who's your one in terms of a, a friend or a neighbor or somebody who lives around you, you're around every day, Who's somebody in your life that you say, you know what? They're really different from me. They don't believe the same things I believe. They don't vote the way I vote. They don't have the values that I have. The values that I have. They may be a different ethnicity. They may be a different race. But I know them. I have some kind of relationship with them. And I need to start committing right now to pray for them to hang out with them, develop a relationship with them, invite them and share the gospel with them. And I need to love the world, all the people of the world, the way that God has loved me. Maybe you just need to commit to volunteering and working in our vacation Bible school. We're gonna have thousands of kids from our community that are gonna be here in a couple of weeks. They need to hear the love of God for them. So whatever it is you need to do, however you can take that next step, and begin to love the world the way that God has loved you. Let's, let's do that as a church. Because can you imagine if the thousands of people called First Baptist Church Naples started loving Southwest Florida and beyond the way that God has loved us? I mean, what kind of difference could we make? Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that whatever decisions and whatever commitments need to be made right now, that by the power of your spirit, you would work in our hearts and work in our lives and that you would cause us to be a people that love the way we have been loved by you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're gonna sing. If you have a decision to make, you come right now while we sing.